Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. My guest today was employee number 107 at Google. He was hired as an engineer, but then his career took a kind of a strange little twist. He ended up spearheading the effort to teach meditation to the employees and executives at Google. His name is Chade Meng Tan. Everybody calls him Meng. Uh, he wrote a book about his experiences at Google called Search Inside Yourself. And now he has a really interesting new book called Joy on Demand. It's interesting on a million levels, but one of the things that I like about it is, you know, most people talk about meditation as something that will make you uh, reduce your stress or make you calm. But Meng is shooting for joy. So we're going to talk to him about what he means by that specifically. Uh, if you like cartoons and corny humor, uh, this book is definitely for you. If you don't like either of those things, the book is also for you because I think you will see in its pages and you will hear in his voice right now a sort of precise intelligence. Um, Meng, my friend, thank you for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, my dear friend. I should. I, I, we should say right up front that we are friends. So, uh, just in the name of full disclosure, and I should also say that we're recording this in San Francisco, which is not far from where Meng uh, lives. Uh, so, I have a million questions, but let me just kind of start at the beginning. Uh, how I'm just curious about how you started meditating. There's an interesting quote in your book. Mm -hmm. uh, you, you describe yourself as an unhappy dude as a young guy. You said misery was my constant companion, and this constant companion. <laughs> smelled like it hadn't showered since Nixon was president. How bad was it and why? Uh, it was really bad. It was so bad that uh, I understand what it's like to, to not want to live. It's that bad. To not want to live. Yeah. So so people, other people who have that issue, I get it. You know? What was the source of that? Um, I mean, life in general. Uh, but more than that, I, I think I had a low happiness set point. It could be a genetic thing. right? So I was... I was uh, I lived most of my life at that time uh, where if nothing was happening, I was just miserable. And and then uh, something shifted. And, and then later on, when uh, when nothing's happening, I'm jolly. And that transformation was, yeah, was life-changing. And do you credit meditation or maturation, marriage, what? <laughs> Definitely meditation. How, how and when did you come to the practice? Right. Uh, almost by accident. So uh, I was miserable, and then just before I turned 21, I was listening to a lecture by a Tibetan Buddhist nun. And I remember only one sentence. Right in the middle of a lecture, she said, it is all about cultivating the mind. I had my, oh my God's moment. It's like suddenly everything made sense. Like everything in my life suddenly made sense. And that moment, I told myself, from this moment on, right here, right now, I'm a Buddhist, and I'm going to learn meditation. What about that sentence resonated with you so strongly? Cultivating the mind. It is the idea that uh, my mind, I suddenly realized that the state of my mind is something I can change. And not just change, it suddenly occurred to me that I can change it drastically. It, it somehow, I somehow got it, but in retrospect, I don't really knew how. I mean, now I know, right? But how did I know back then? Not clear. I mean, but th th that is the thing that, I mean, I'm always trying to point out to people that the, the, the radical and empowering kind of insight of meditation is that this that you can work on your mind. You can train it just the way you can train your bicep in the gym. It's just a huge thing to learn. I didn't learn it at 21. I learned it in my late 30s after being a complete idiot for a long time. <laughs> um, 
So, but you, you, you write about this in the book. You struggled a lot with meditation because you're so intense. Yes. You know, I mean, you're not, you don't seem intense right now, but you were really intense mm-hmm. and just kind of success oriented, results oriented, young engineer. Mm-hmm. You tell me a little bit about that struggle. Uh, I was trying too hard. So, uh, I mean, I learned meditation like most uh, Americans, type A personality. The idea is, okay, we sit and we have no thoughts, right? Or, or don't be distracted or something. That's, that's, the, that's the idea I used to have. Right? So I would just put a lot of my attention on, like, sit. Right? Like that, a lot of strain. You were, you were gripping and, I was and gripping. a lot of grit. Yes. But by the way, you were, you were raised in Singapore, right? Correct. Okay, so this was all happening in Singapore or had Correct. you come to the U.S.? Okay. I'm in Singapore. And then, uh, and then I just find myself stressed and, and unhappy and it just didn't work. My mind kept wandering anyway. And I wasn't relaxed. I was still stressed. And so, and then one day I just like, I just gave up. But I, I had my vow, right, to learn meditation. So I gave up in a skillful way, which is instead of just like give up, give up, I just sat there and not do anything. And it turns out not doing anything is precisely what I needed to do. <laughs> and then, uh, so, so my problem at specific, my problem at that time was this, was I could not breathe. And therefore, I can say for certain that I was the worst meditator in the world because nobody else had that problem. They cannot breathe. I was that intense. So, and then when I like, just sat there and not do anything, after about 10 minutes, I just, I caught myself breathing. And then it's like for the first time ever, I knew what it's like to bring attention to the breath and still able to breathe. And the secret is not is to not be so intense. And and then from and at the same time, at the moment, something else happened, which was very strange. Which I find myself enveloped in joy. Like nothing was happening, I was just joyful. And that was my first experience of joy independent of sense stimulation. Okay, so what do you mean, when you use the word joy, what are you describing exactly? I'm describing a quality of emotionality, a feeling. So the difference between joy and happiness. Happiness is, is more of a long-term thing, right? taken, taken to a long-term, right? uh, uh, how do I say it? It's a summation of life's moments and look at it as a whole and say, ah, I'm happy. Joy in contrast, so, so in other words, happiness is not an emotion, it is not a mood, it is not a moment it is an integrated, long-term thing. Joy, in contrast, is a moment thing. It's a moment-to-moment feeling of pleasantness. And, uh, yeah, pleasantness. So, but I can know pleasant without feeling what I would describe as joy, but I may be misunderstanding what joy is, almost certainly. Mm-hmm. Because there are lots of pleasant things in my <laughs> life, but they don't necessarily give me joy. But I guess your argument would be they're not giving me joy because I'm not attuned correctly to them. Uh Actually, it goes beyond that. Uh, I think one of the most important things I've ever learned in my life is that the mind in and of itself, in other words, the mind in its default mode is joyful. In its default mode, it's joyful. Correct. Not my mind. <laughs> Not yet, my friend. Oh, actually, it is. You just have to discover it. Or right. uncover it. Uh, uncover I like that. There's one way to look at it, which is uh, sometimes we look at, we see that the, the baseline is unhappiness and we debut happiness on top of that. But it's the reverse. It's that the baseline is happiness and it's, um, it's obstructed by things that allow us to, that this allow us to access it. So all you have to do is deconstruct the obstruction. And happiness is, the joy is already there. And that's what meditation does, is just chip away at all the sort of calcified layers of confusion, delusion, 
That's one anger. way to that's one way to see it. Another way to see it, so so one way to see it, that is a long term thing. Another way to see it is a very short term thing, which is that the mind in is uh when it's calm and clear at the same time, that is when you access that joy that's always there. And the analogy is is the air conditioning in this room. Right? It's always there. That the sound of the air conditioning. But if if you're talking, you don't hear it. Mm. But the moment you're silent and you pay attention, you hear it. And you find it's always there. And it's the same thing. The joy in the mind is always there. The only thing you need to do to access it is to quiet the mind and pay attention. Shut the hell up and get out of the way. <laughs> uh, shut the hell up and be there. Right. Yeah. So, so okay, we started talking about joy, uh, but I, and I want to come back to it, but I want to get a little bit back to you. Um, mm-hmm. One of the things you say that you realized as a very type A dude, mm-hmm. was that you you had assumed that success would lead to happiness. Yes. But you ended up coming to the conclusion that it was the other way around. Yes. Walk me through that. So I, I was raised, uh, I'm, I'm Chinese, right? I was raised in Asia, and we had this Chinese thing, the tiger, the tiger mom thing. Mm. Is your mom a tiger mom? Uh, not as bad as most other moms, <laughs> but she's Asian. <laughs> she's Chinese. <laughs> So, so we always been taught since we were young, work hard, work hard, so that when you grow up, you'll be successful, and then you'll be happy. Right? Turns out it's precisely the reverse. According to the scientific literature, if you're successful, it doesn't make you happy. However, the reverse is true. If you're happy, you will be more successful. And numbers are compelling. For example, uh, all other things equal, the happy salesperson is 37% more, percent, 37% more effective at selling. And if you think about it, it kind of makes sense, right? It's like all, all things equal, who will you buy from? You buy from the grumpy guy or the happy guy? Mm. You kind of prefer to buy from grumpy guy. And how much more? It turns out about 37%. Yeah, but but okay, so if you're a boss, mm-hmm. isn't it better to be feared than loved? Uh, no. The, the studies, the research says that is... Uh, so, 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 so the first question, do you have to choose between uh, being loved and being effective as a boss? And this, this research says you, you choose both at once. So there was a fascinating study, I think from Stanford, where uh, the researchers were looking out, they, they looked at the population of the most effective and least effective leaders, uh, managers in a certain company, looking for the difference. Turns out there's only one difference, which is the best performing managers, they, want, they love people and they want to be loved, hmm. which is fascinating. Right? And so was the explanation. It turns out there was a very simple explanation, which is the more, all other things equal, of course, the more your people love you, the harder they work for you. Mm. And then the, the more you succeed as a manager. It's as simple as that. How did you get the idea to bring meditation into Google? And when you first proposed the idea, did people look at you like you were out of your <laughs> mind? Um, I did that for a very simple reason. I have, I have a dream. And all I want to do was to create the conditions for world peace in my lifetime. That was all. <laughs> okay, now I've heard you say this a million times before. And, and I always wonder, like, do you actually mean that? Um, because people talk about world peace and it can be an empty, yes. uh, an empty, tr- you know, um, mm. platitude, you know, yes. world peace. Yes. Um, it's almost like a joke. But you, you talk about di- wanting to create the yes. conditions for world peace in this lifetime. Yes. Do you actually mean that? And what specifically do you mean by yes, that? Yes, I do. And uh, the difference is I'm an engineer. So the engineer, first question he asks himself is how. And next question he asks himself is how. 
So uh, the way I see it, uh, there are two pillars to create the conditions for world peace. The first is ending global poverty and uh, environmental destruction. That's one pillar. The second pillar is something I call global enlightenment, which is uh, inner peace, inner joy, and compassion scaled worldwide. And I think each of these pillars by itself is insufficient, but combined, they are necessary and sufficient, I think. And so, so from that line of thinking, I decided that I want to focus on the second pillar. I mean, at that time, now I'm doing both. At that time, I was decided to work on the second pillar, which is scaling inner peace, inner joy, and compassion. The question is, how? Okay. And I figured it out. I figured out a way to do that is to align peace, joy, compassion with success and profits. Because if I had to go around spreading goodness, goodness will not stick. People will listen, they'll clap their hands and they go home. Nothing changes. But if I say, this is how you can become more successful. This is how you get more profitable. And where peace, joy, compassion is a necessary and unavoidable side effect, then they'll spread. And then the question is how? And I figured it out. And it is, to, it is emotional intelligence. So training people to become emotionally intelligent through mindfulness then I can help people succeed where they necessarily also acquire peace, joy, compassion. And so that was my starting point. And then I started selling this in Google. Uh, and I made no secret. I made no secret about this, in, about both, both aspects, which is first, is, this is a success curriculum. This is a leadership curriculum. And I'm doing this for world peace. And so when I first started doing that, I expected to be hit on both sides. I thought the, the, the pragmatic people would say, ah, peace, joy, happiness, that's, that's buoy. And I expected the Dharma people to say, prophet, that's, that's heretic or something. Uh, but it, it turned out really well. It turns out people get it. Uh, especially in Google. The thing about Google is people are very smart and very curious. So uh, some last percentage of them say they're willing to try. Some percentage say this is all hippie bush <laughs> And... They are willing to try. <laughs> I mean, the guy came to my class and he told me in those words, "This is hippie bullshit." But but he he stayed he stayed in the class. He listened he listened with curiosity, and I told him I gave him the signs and everything, and he was convinced. And he came back the next week and the week after and so on. What do you think of the critics of corporate mindfulness? Because mm -hmm. there are many mm -hmm. um, who who believe that this is this is uh, kind of a perversion of the dharma. <laughs> Uh, I think their hearts are in the right place. Right? Uh, I, it's, it's good to be concerned. It's, uh, it's good to be concerned about people and it's good to be concerned about purity of Dharma. And I think those critics, they're coming from there. So, so that makes me happy. And also it keeps me honest. So the way I see it, I, I'm doing this work uh, as an upaya. Upaya means skillful means. It means starting from where the student is rather than from where the teacher is and then helping the student get uh, into upward trajectory. Right? And starting from student is in the corporate world means success and profits. The, the challenge is doing this while preserving the purity of Dharma. And I think the way to do that is first, uh, how should I say it? Uh, tell you how not to do it. The way to not do it is to have only the relaxation piece. And I'm saying, this is it, there's no more. Right. I think the way to do it well is to include all three pillars of practice, or all three pillars of Dharma in the practice of corporate mindfulness. And the three pillars are first the calmness of, and relaxation, 
Second, insight and wisdom. And third, I think most important of all, kindness and compassion. So in designing my classes, I'm very careful to include all three. And I hope that by doing that, I am keeping the Dharma pure and benefiting people in the corporate world. You're in a funny position, and and ha ha funny. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you're in a funny position, and I actually am in the same funny position because mm-hmm. both of us are committed believers in the importance of bringing meditation to everybody. Yes, no matter what your pre-existing religious beliefs are, or if, or if you're um, just a committed non-believer, as I am. Um, yes, uh, and yet both of us are open and avowed Buddhists. Yes, so I'm just curious to hear from you how you handled that because you're very open about being a Buddhist and yet yeah. you're, you're teaching meditation in secular environments. Yeah, uh, I don't see what is the, the contradiction. <laughs> you don't and I don't, but <laughs> most people do because they think Buddhism is a religion. Uh-huh. Hmm, that's interesting. I don't know. Actually, I'm, I'm more, I may be even more Buddhist than, than I, made, I made myself out to be, which is, uh, I mean, truthfully, uh, what I did was I made a solemn vow which is to de- dedicate the rest of my life in service of Buddha and Dharma and by extension, the world. So in that, in a sense, I'm even more Buddhist. <laughs> and I, I, think, I think that because of that vow, uh, secularity becomes a really important piece, right? Because if, if we only serve a certain small population of, of self-proclaimed believers, then we are not doing justice to humanity and, and to, hu- to Buddha and Dharma, in my opinion. But 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 is it a barrier? Because Search Inside Yourself Institute, which you which now started as something that was be, this this mm-hmm. meditation slash emotional intelligence curriculum that was being taught inside mm-hmm. Google is now being taught at other corporations. But yeah. you're going around writing books and being on podcasts and giving speeches where you talk about the Buddha and your solemn vow and all that <laughs> stuff. Do people say, "I don't want you to come into my corporation. You're a Buddhist. I can't. Mm-hmm. I can't do that. I, I'm going to be drummed out by my uh, Christian or Jewish or whatever mm-hmm. um, employees." Uh, I haven't had that problem yet. And I'll tell you why. Uh, the, the first thing is, the first reason is that uh, I'm very careful to, to use the word Dharma and rather than teachings of the Buddha. And Dharma I define here as universal law. Universal, especially when applied to, uh, especially relating to suffering and liberation from suffering. And you find that Dharma is not an exclusive domain of Buddhism. Dharma is everywhere, in every religion, and even in sec- secular ethics. Right? So, so we're just like teaching universal law and the practices that allow us to become better human beings. So I, I think, and also you, as you see uh, in the curriculum, it's very scientific based on science. And we, we are very careful to use a language that is uh, secular. So for example, in SIY for a long time, I banned the B word. <laughs> Buddhism. Yes, yeah, yeah. Buddhism or Buddha. Uh, so how, how well did that work out? Uh, surprisingly well. So I'll tell you a story. Uh, one time I was giving a speech. Uh, I won't tell you who or what or when, but I was giving a speech. And then I, f- I forgot to return the earpiece as, as, they, as I was done. They escorted me off the stage. They, f- I f- they forgot to ask for the earpiece back. So I was backstage. I, I could hear what was on stage. And so the, the, the vice chairman of the company who invited me, he came on stage. And he said, like, literally behind my back, he says, as you, as you guys know, I'm a Christian and that guy's a Buddhist. And what he just said on stage, I agree with everything he said. Hmm. I was like, wow, behind my back, he said those wonderful things. So, so I was very happy. And I, for me, I felt that 
this working, right? I mean, my my carefulness in in separating Buddhism away from Dharma and Dharma away from secular teaching, so that can reach the world is is working. I think. I think there's some evidence to support that view. Um, so you let me just talk a little bit more about you specifically, um, and then I want to talk about the book. You you make repeated references in the book, actually, mm-hmm. to the fact that even after you started meditating, you had periods of real despair. Oh, yeah. What, what, what's going on there? What... <laughs> Welcome to life, my dear friend. <laughs> in life, there's always despair. I, I mean, things happen. Indeed, it does. So you're not a, you're you're not a one you're not one of these types who goes around saying you start meditating and everything all your problems will be solved. Uh, as as your practice deepens, you find that more and more problems are solved. Or, or rather, actually, there are a couple of levels. Uh, one one level, fewer and fewer things become problems. Right. Right. And then when there are problems, uh, they are more likely to to be resolvable. And when they're not resolvable, they are more likely to be manageable. You retired about a year ago yeah, from Google? About six months ago. Six months ago. Okay, so yeah. sorry. And I remember getting the email announcing your retirement, and you, one of the things you said you were going to do is to start meditating three hours a day. How's that going? Not going well. <laughs> I, I managed to do it for 40 days and 40 nights. <laughs> I figured I owe myself at least that. <laughs> and then what happened? Uh, so I tell this joke, which unfortunately is true, which is I'm working on four things, and, and each one is taking half my time. <laughs> So the 40 days and 40 nights, uh, I discovered that if I keep doing that, uh, my to-do list just keeps getting longer and longer. My, my inbox getting bigger and bigger. Mm. And, and I was failing in that aspect. So, so now I'm down to like 75 minutes a day. That's and, pretty good still. Uh, it, it sucks. And, <laughs> <laughs> and, and I'm, I'm hoping that over time, maybe at the end of the year, I'll be re- I have fewer things to do. And the book being out and, and so on. And then I can re- I can go back to three hours a day. I'm rooting for you. So let's talk about the book. Um, okay. you, you, it's just filled with all of these very practical pieces of advice. Joy can sound like one of these these words that we throw out. We don't really talk about. I mean, we don't really know what we're talking about when we talk about it. But you're very precise. Mm-hmm. Uh, not only in your you sort of carve up all these different defin- all these different types of joy. Um, but also in in uh, you're very precise in how in these little uh, exercises that you give the reader about how one can generate joy. So mm-hmm. you just walk. I'll, I'll let you pick whatever you want to talk about. What what are some of the ways in which uh, we can either generate joy or just attune, be attuned, more attuned to the joy that naturally arises during the course of a day? Can I give three suggestions? Is that too you much? can give as many suggestions as you want. <laughs> the floor is yours. Okay. Uh, so so the first suggestion is is this. This is a 15-second practice. But I'll tell you what it is. It's a three-breath practice. Each breath takes about five seconds. Three breaths. Yeah. Okay. The first breath, you bring full attention to the process of breathing. So I call this step collecting, collecting attention. The second breath, calm the body, whatever that means to you. And the third breath, invite joy. And if you don't know what that means, try smiling. And you may notice that you are a little bit happier already. There's some joy in there already. And the reason is each of these three steps is conducive in joy in and of itself. Collectedness of attention is conducive to joy. Calming of body is conducive to joy. Smiling 
or maybe just even thinking, I, I want to be joyful. This conducive to joy. Combine three together in 15 seconds. You find joy arising already. So is it going to be the kind of joy that I would experience if I won the lottery or the kind of joy that I would experience if, you know, uh, <laughs> you know, I was 15 years old and the prettiest girl in the school was willing to go on a date with me? What kind of, is that what I should be expecting or is it more subtle? Uh, it's more subtle. Uh, it's more subtle and it's more sustainable. So the thing about winning a lottery and, and, and having a girl go on a date is it doesn't sustain itself for very long. Uh, number of seconds, number of minutes, or some number of hours, maybe days. But the type of joy that, that I'm talking about, and there's a technical term, sukha, S-U-K-H-A. And some this people, is the technical Buddhist term. The, the technical sukha, Buddhist yes, term, yes. Yeah. Some people translate it as low, uh, non-energetic joy, so the joy that doesn't require energy. And because it doesn't require energy, there are two features. The first feature is, is very subtle, and the second feature is, is extremely sustainable. And so once your mind is subtle enough to see it, to experience it, it, is, it can sustain it for a really long time. So it's there's a difference between excitement yes. and joy. Excitement we get when we bite into a candy bar mm. or uh, you know watch a great movie or mm. what all these yes. these these sort of mm. work a day pleasures that we get we get that's different from what you're talking about. Yes, uh, again the technical term for for that form of joy is piti p i t i, uh, which means uh, again sometimes translated as energetic joy sometimes translated as rapture. But not so sustainable. Not so sustainable. Uh, that's a fun feature. The other feature you find is that wherever there's pity, there's always sukha, but not vice versa. So wherever there's an energetic joy, there's always a subtle joy, but not always the other way around. This show is brought to you by BetterHelp. I got to tell you, I feel so much better when I talk about my anxiety instead of keeping it bottled up. There's an expression that I first heard from the great researcher and also Zen practitioner Robert Waldinger, never worry alone. Our temptation many times is to keep it bottled up, but the data really show that the people who do the best in life, who live the longest and are the happiest, have strong relationships with people with whom they can talk about whatever's going on in their lives. And for me, therapy is part of that. If you're thinking of starting therapy, you might give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash happier today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash happier. You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or T-Mobile.com to switch. Plan savings with T-Mobile. Third line free on essentials via monthly bill credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. Credits stop if you cancel or change plans. Okay, so back to your three breath exercise. On the third breath, when I'm inviting joy. Yes. I mean, I've been meditating for a little while. I'm not some master, but I wasn't, I wasn't. I wasn't feeling joy because I've been doing this the last couple of days. Um, does that mean I'm a terrible meditator or I'm just not looking for the right thing? What, ah, what's the deal? Did, did you try smiling? I didn't try smiling. Uh-huh. So that's it. 
the thing about smiling is uh, the thing about face and emotion. The face expresses emotion, but it's also the other way around. What is in the face also affects emotion. So maybe try that. A full smile or a half smile, whatever that means to you, and see if that works. And there are lots of other... So can, can you tell us some other yes. um, so, uh, so, ways yes. that you... So, th- so that's one. Another uh, way to increase joyfulness in life is to notice thin slices of joy in real life. Uh, for example, when I'm thirsty, I, I drink a sip of water and during the sip of it, I have that, that jolt of joy and it's very subtle. It, is, uh, it's, it lasts for like maybe one or two seconds. So it's thin in both space and time. And because it's thin, we, are, we tend not to notice them. So the, the, the practice is simply to notice that they exist. That is all. And once you do that, after a while, you notice that it's everywhere. That thin slice of joy, moments of joy, permeates life all the time. You, you actually do a great job of listing little thin slices of joy that we miss most of the time. That minute that the hot water in the shower hits you. Yes. Uh, yes. Eating, uh, you know, that first bite of food. Yes. All these, uh, all these little d- things that are happening to us all the time that we overlook because we're in such a rush or whatever. Correct. Uh, that if you would just attune into them, yes. here you go. Yes. The thing about tuning in is this is something even more important and even more effective, which is familiarization. By tuning in often, the mind familiarizes with joy. And the word familiar is related to the word family. It's basically the same word. I mean, it's the same root. And, and so after a while, the mind treats joy like a member of the family or like a best friend. It's, it's always reliable. It's always there. And that's how the mind becomes uh, inclined towards joy with very simple practices like simply noticing. Now, I, I don't know if the following is a disagreement between me and you or if it's a misunderstanding. Probably the latter. Um, <laughs> but... One of the things that I've always been taught about meditation that I find heartening in some ways is that it's the goal is not to feel a certain way. It yes. is to feel whatever you feel clearly. Yes. Yes. So people feel like they've failed meditators because they don't feel calm or yes. they don't feel wh- yes. whatever. Mm-hmm. But and I'm always reassuring people by saying, no, it's not a big deal. The whole the whole point of mindfulness yes. is just to be with whatever's there yes. so that off the cushion when you're attacked by anger or yes. patience, you're not yanked around by it. Yes. But here you are saying we can get joy on demand. Yes. So. It, to my ears, there are parts of that that seem problematic. Correct me where I am wrong, my uh, friend. You're not wrong. Uh, it's actually both. They're both true at once. So first thing is, is the context. Uh, it turns out, at least in early Buddhism, the, the version that was uh, in the Nikayas, taught by the Buddha, uh, joy is dominant in, in the practice. For example, the way the Buddha described the path, he calls it uh, the, the good and safe path to be taken joyfully. And then in this description of the path, uh, for another example, the seven factors of enlightenment. Pity, the, the energetic joy, is one of the factors. Uh, and then when he talked about the, the, the path from, from suffering, from dukkha, to, uh, to enlightenment, uh, I can't remember the name, enlightenment, of, the, yeah. Yeah, uh, the name of the sutra, but he, he went through a whole chain. And in this chain, three of the factors have to do with joy, like pamoja, uh, pity, and sukha. And they eventually lead to samadhi, and leading to equanimity, leading to seeing things as they are, and so on. And Somebody I being concentration, concentration. I'm just making yes. sure I collectedness of mind. Right? Yeah. So, so the whole chain, and you find that everything he teaches is about joy. Right? Even matter, when you talk about loving kindness, why do loving kindness? Because it's joyful. So joy is an integral path 
or integral piece of the Buddha's teaching. Even samadhi itself, collectedness of mind. Uh, it is one of the most important aspects in, in meditative practice. Even for that, the Buddha says, the proximate cause of samadhi is joy. Sukha specifically. Sukha leads directly to samadhi. The Buddha was incredibly technical, and I yes. think people can hear this in, in some of the things you, you some mm. of the foregoing mm. here. Mm. And, you know, he was almost like OCD in how technical <laughs> he was. And these, these one mind state leads to the next, what yeah. emotion kind of leads to the next, the proximate cause of X is Y. Yeah. To you as an engineer, is that very appealing? Oh, I love it. Every time I read it, I feel I'm home. <laughs> yes. So, so in, the, in a sense, what I'm doing, I, I see the way I see it is I'm continuing the tradition. Of, of the precision of the languaging and something else. So this is a slight diversion from, from what we just talked about. You find that uh, the Buddha is also, I think, deliberately secular. And so the context was this. The context was uh, one day the Buddha is in the forest and he, he picked up a handful of leaves and he asked uh, the monks, uh, which is more, my handful of leaves or the leaves on, the, on all the trees in the forest? And monks say, well, a handful of leaves, duh. right? And the Buddha says, the trees on the forest, this is what the Buddha knows. The leaves in my hand, this is what I teach. So what the Buddha teaches is a tiny subset of what he knows. And that to me uh, answers a very big question, which is if you look at the evolution of Buddhism, when it became Mahayana and Vrajrayana, and there are like lots of very powerful practices, and very few of them are taught in the Nikaya itself, in early Buddhism. So the question I ask myself, why didn't the Buddha teach those things? Why didn't he teach Tantra? Why didn't he teach uh, Guru devotion? Why didn't he teach, uh, 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 what do you call it, uh, Wu Wei, like non-doing? These are all valid Dharma, but they're not in Nikayas. Why? And I, I figured the reason is generality. Is whatever the Buddha was teaching is the most general, I mean most generalizable, most teachable to everybody. Because it doesn't rely on magic, doesn't rely on, on blind faith, doesn't rely on deities. And it's so powerful that even today, I can use it wholesale in teaching my, my Christian friends and, and my non-believer friends. Wholesale, with very little changes. And I, see, I think that is precisely why the Buddha taught only those handful of leaves. Mm. Right? So... I don't know where I was going with this, but no, no, it doesn't matter where you were going. Yeah, yeah, but but to me that was to me. I'm I'm seeing myself as a trying to continue that tradition. Yeah, that the precision, uh, and the uh, and the uh, subset that is most applicable to everybody, and uh, not not losing the power of the Dharma. But I was the one who sent you down this tributary. Uh, <laughs> but I was trying to get you to explain to me why. My my understanding that one does not need to feel a certain way. Uh -huh. uh, oh, okay. Uh, so 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 the way I see it is, as your practice, as we talked about earlier, as your practice improves, right? Uh, fewer things become problems, problems become solvable, and non-solvable problems become manageable. So even going down the path of joy, those things are still true. We still have problems, and we still have problems that are unsolvable. And so therefore. They're both, both aspects of practice are true at once. One aspect is increasing the joy, relying on the joy, creating the joy, and dealing with everything else with equanimity. And at the end of it, the, 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 at the end of it, I think it converges. It converges into nirvana, where it's, it's perfectly equanimous and perfectly joyful. So let me just see if I can restate that. So on the one hand, 
it is completely kosher and healthy to try to cultivate and notice to cultivate joy that's not there and notice the joy that is there that you may not be noticing. Yes. Uh, on the other hand, it is also an important part of the practice to just be able to sit with whatever comes up in an impermanent and tropic universe where terrible things happen and we feel like crap. Yes. It, uh, an important part of the practice is just to be able to sit with it in a way that is open and that doesn't allow it to yank you around. Correct. So and I got it right. It's going right. And uh, very important, always need to mention love and compassion. Well, let's let's yes. talk about love and compassion because you say this is a this is like the almost the most surefire way to generate yes. joy. Yes. Uh, and again, here we are in an area where love and compassion these you know the, the temptation of a dyed in the wool skeptic like me is to say okay, this is this is just <laughs> again more empty platitudes. Right. So uh, tell me why I'm wrong. Uh so it turns out that uh it's actually very easy to practice uh kindness, loving kindness. So the word is, is the technical instrument is metta. M-E-T-T-A. Correct. Meta, yeah. Yes, yes. Uh, and the way to practice is this. Uh, so, so first the definition. The definition of metta is the wish for others to be happy. It's as simple as that. And the way to practice it is, is simply like, just imagine, either imagine or just see a human being. Let's say I'm looking at you right now, my brother. And let's just think to myself, I wish for this guy to be happy. That's it. That's the entire practice. Right? So, so first it's very easy. And it's very easy because all it takes is the arising of a thought. And as far as from my, my experience as a human being, every adult I've ever met in my life knows how to bring up a thought. <laughs> so it's, and when it would bring up a thought, maybe the audience should try this now. Let's imagine one person and just wish for that person to be happy. And when you do that, you may notice joy. That to be on the giving end of a kind thought is intrinsically rewarding. Like immediately, the first time you do it, immediately you, you sense a reward. And it's so powerful that, so one time I, I signed this as homework. I mean, I always assign this as homework when I give a speech. One time I, I did this on a Monday night and I signed this homework. I said, do this tomorrow when you go to work. For every hour, on the hour, just randomly wish for two people to be happy in your head. So don't say it out loud, just think. I wish for this guy and that guy to be happy. And then that's it. And I go back to work, nothing changes. So on Wednesday morning, I received an email from a total stranger. And this person said, I hate my job. I hate coming to work every single day. But I did the homework on Tuesday, and Tuesday was my happiest day in seven years. And what did it take to, to do that? 80 seconds of thinking. That's like a huge return on investment. Right? And it's like anybody can do that. All you have to do is think for a few seconds. So, so it's, therefore, kindness is not something that is like... Like, whoa. It is just something that you can practice within a few seconds and already you get, you get the effect. So the only, the only thing is the more you practice, the easier and the more powerful it becomes. And as you describe in the book, I mean, it, we are, we're wired for this. We're social animals. We evolved mm -hmm. to have um, mm. uh, interactions with other humans. And so yes, not there's just, something good about it. Not something just that, that feels good about yes, it. Yes, not just we're social. We're ultra-social. Ultra social. Yes, yeah. we. Uh, as far as I know, we are the only mammals that are ultra social outside of naked mole rats. But they are kind of an exception because uh, outside of who? Uh, naked mole rats. Naked mole rats. So they're, they're a species of, of moles. Naked mole rats. Yeah. yeah okay. Yeah, but they, they live in they live like like ants. They live in colonies of of uh, of very closely related uh, uh, relatives, and so therefore they are ultra social. Mm -hmm. But outside of that, uh, human beings are the only ultra social member. In fact, outside of insects, we're the only ultra-social animal, except naked mole rats. 
And and one way to to think about it is uh, the way my friend Tom puts it. He went to a zoo, right? And he went to San Francisco Zoo, and he saw he was looking at tigers, and somebody told him, uh, and there are ten thousand people in the zoo, and, so, and somebody told him, oh, if if you put two male tigers together, they kill each other. And then he think he look, he looked back, and they're like there are five thousand human males in the zoo, and nobody was killing each other, and that's auto sociality. Right. right. So the difference between social and outro social animals is that we work with other uh, human beings who are not closely related to us, like not even remotely related, not even cousins or second cousins. We just we work and live together, and so there has to be a mechanism for outro sociality to work, the neural mechanism. And my suspicion, and I could be wrong, is that the mechanism is is precisely what I just said, which is wishing for others to be happy is itself rewarding. Mm-hmm. And that's how we create autosocial uh, species. I, I personally think that makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. You talk about thinking about your own death as mm-hmm. uh, something that will bring up joy. Uh, for me, uh, it doesn't directly. I, I know there are people who, who, say, who say, I know there's, there's research that suggests that. So the, the research suggests that if you're thinking about joy, then uh, you're more likely to, to be... Thinking about death. Uh, sorry, thinking about death. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. Yeah, death, you're more likely, your, your brain, your mind is biased towards joy uh, for for some amount of time. And, and for example, if you're old, the older you are, the more you're closer to death, then the happier you are, in, in the more you appreciate life. Yeah, I've seen graphs that show that people are happy when they're kids, then mm. they go to a huge trough mm. all the way until when they get old. Yes. Oh, yeah, it's called parenthood. <laughs> and marriage, but don't call me on that. <laughs> Your mileage may, may, may vary. Uh, but so... How, how should I put it? Um, the thing about, about death, actually I do more than that. I do something we call f- the, five, uh, the five contemplations. And so every day I remember five things. I am subject to aging. I am subject to illness. I am subject to death. Everything that I hold dear will eventually be separated from me. And I'm the owner of my karma, the creator of my karma, and heir to my karma. These five things. And on the surface, these five things are very depressing. <laughs> And uh, it, for me, it leads me to a, a, a state of mind which is very, quite unpleasant. And there's a technical term for it in Pali. And the technical term is samvega. And samvega is the feeling of what you call it, urgency. Mm. Like looking at how, uh, no, understanding from these five reflections that there is no such thing as permanent happiness in life the way we live it. So and so, there's an urgency, and also there's kind of, there's a discomfort, and sometimes the discomfort can lead to depression. So to balance some vega, uh, there is something called pas- pasada, again a technical term, which basically means the practice, the practice of calmness, of of insight, wisdom, and of kindness and compassion, and they balance each other out. So without some vega, without the urgency, you kind of get stuck, uh, uh, in the spiritual sense. But if you if you only have pasta, you don't have some vega, there's no urgency to move forward. Then you kind of like get stuck again in a different way. I, I think there so, is a. I'm sorry, no, I, you, you had more to say. Sorry. Uh, and so 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 for me, that is a is a very nice combination. And for me, therefore, uh, the contemplation on death, it it is it brings about the urgency and the what do you call uh, the clarity to live my life in a way that is, is meaningful to me. And so by that sense, in a sense, it helps me become happier. What I was going to say when I rudely interrupt you was that, and just to amplify your point, um, was that there is a kind of pleasure, if that's the right word, with aligning yourself with what is undeniably true. 
Mm. And so while it is unpleasant on some levels to think about the fact that you and everybody you know are going to die and we're going to get sick and yeah. all these other hard truths, there actually is this if you're – there's a subtle pleasure to aligning with what is true. And I'm just kind of just saying this, but what's your view of that? <laughs> uh, I think you may be right. Uh, but I experience it slightly differently. I, I experience it as an urgency. An urgency, right. Yeah. So I mean, it may be just different for all sorts of people. Well, we talked about this a little bit before. We said, but here you are, the guy who wrote the Joy on a book called Joy on Demand. Um, do you get into bad moods uh, well, still? Life, this is life, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, and should we feel badly as people mm -hmm. who are going to follow your little tips and tricks um, mm -hmm. if we get into bad moods? Uh, no, don't feel bad because if you feel bad about feeling bad. It's, then it's, it's called meta-suffering. It's suffering mm. about suffering. Mm. Yeah. Well, or the Buddha, or there's this term from Buddhism, but the second arrow. Right. You get hit by an arrow, you feel like crap because you get hit by an arrow. But then you feel, you know, the add on this whole story. Why am I always the dude who's getting hit by an arrow? That's yeah. a second arrow that That's you right. are applying voluntarily. That's right. Um, yeah. So I, I agree with that. Um, all right, here's, my, here's the other question I want. I want to just get your advice in public. Okay. You, you, you talk a lot in the book in a very, I think, insightful, data-driven way. Mm -hmm. Some of the data you're just kind of making up, but mm -hmm. it's clear that you, you're, it's built upon some actual data um, about how to build, how to start and sustain a meditation practice. Mm -hmm. So I'd be curious just to your advice to my listeners about how to do that and also your advice to me about somebody who's got a meditation app now where we're trying to get people to right. start meditating and stay meditating. Right. So just free associate, if you will, about what, about any of that. The first problem is how to, how to get people to start or how you start. The second problem is once you start, how you sustain. And I think they are, like, they are not the same. Uh, because if you solve one, it doesn't necessarily solve the other. So getting people to start, um, the, I think the, a couple of key aspects of this idea. One key aspect is this idea of a minimum effective dose. Right? It's a dosage that you give that that, uh, there's a minimum dosage that you give that is effective. So if you give less than that, it doesn't work. Then the person says, eh, it doesn't work. But if you give too much beyond that, then it's overdose. Then it's like, whoa, whoa, I can't do this. So, so there's an understanding of where the minimum effective dose is and applying the, just the right amount. Okay? So, so that is, I think, the key concept in getting people to start. So what is the minimum effective dose? Uh, so in the old days, I'll say two minutes. Uh, I, I, I get people to do meditation for two minutes and then they get it. Right. And, and now I think it's, it's one breath is enough. And uh, the way I, I do it is this. I get people to take one breath where you, you bring full attention, full attention to one in-breath and one out-breath, whatever full attention means to you. So people do that. Maybe you do one, one breath right now. You might notice you're calmer already in one breath. And why? Turns out there are two reasons. There's a psychological reason and a physiological reason. Physiologically, when you bring attention, full attention to a breath, uh, you, for some reason, your breath slows down and it becomes deeper. And you, then you, you stimulate your vagus nerve. And when you stimulate your vagus nerve, you activate something called the relaxation response. And that's V-A-G-U-S. Yeah, so the vagus nerve, when you activate, it activates the, the relaxation response, which is the direct opposite of the stress response. So your heart rate goes down, your blood pressure goes down, and so on. And therefore, you feel more relaxed already. 
psychologically, I think even more powerful, which is to, to be regretful, you need to be in the past. To, to worry, you need to be in the future. So if you're bringing full attention to the breath, then for the duration of the breath, you are free from worry and regret. Free from worry and regret. It's that powerful. Even though it lasts for only one breath, you can feel the impact. And so the practice is that what if you can do more? You can extend this freedom from worry and regret and you can deepen it into a kind of a, a, a extraordinary sense of freedom and joy. That is the practice. But it begins with one breath and in one breath you already feel it. And there's something else interesting about this is that it turns out it's not just for meditators. This is very useful even for sports people. This is useful for performance. So not just living life. And the best example I know of was tennis players, which is uh, tennis players, the best tennis players in the world, the, the ones who win the, the Wimbledon's, they develop this skill, which is what we just talked about, which is between points, 10, 15 seconds between points, they're able to rest their minds and bodies so effectively that they're more rested before the next point begins and therefore they can sustain high performance throughout the whole game and therefore they do win Wimbledon's. And so I, I asked that to Novak when I, when I finally met him. Novak Djokovic? Yes, best tennis player in the history of the game. Yeah, also an active meditator. Yes, yeah. and I, I didn't know at that time. Yeah. But I, I asked him, is, is this true? Do you have this skill? Do you develop this skill? And he said, yes, and this skill is, is uh, uh, this is, he said this, he didn't say those words. Let me see. What the, so this is the key for him. He confirmed that this is the most important part. And so the exact words are this. The exact words that he said, he said, at my level, tennis is no longer a physical game. It's a mental game. And the way to win it is to be able to calm your mind and always think clearly. And so I think that's why he's the best tennis player in the world, because he's a meditator, in addition to his training as tennis player. So that's how you start, is to yes. figure out the minimum effective dosage. But how do you keep people meditating? Yes. Uh, that in, in and of itself, it turns out to be a very tough problem. Uh, so even for people in my class, right, they come to my class for eight weeks or whatever number of weeks it was, and then, uh, because some, some other versions, is a two-day class, and universally, they say, this changed my life. And then uh, 10 weeks late after the class, 20 weeks after the class, are you still meditating? No. <laughs> Didn't it change your life? <laughs> mm -hmm. and so like, like, why? It was very vexing to me. And, and I realized that uh, the gym has the same problem. Right? The, the people, they come to the gym and they don't come back. And I know the guys at the gym, they, they have programs to encourage people to keep coming back. And they didn't, they didn't work so well. So question is why? Uh, I th the, the reason is because uh, it's kind of boring in a sense. The gym and meditation, they're both kind of boring and they, they take time. And it's like, it's, there's always something else to do that is more important, like doing your next report or, uh, I don't know, watching cats on YouTube or something. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, how do you solve this problem? And again, I, I, look, at, I look at sports for, for inspiration. And or rather as a, for inspiration and as an analogy. And there are a couple of uh, uh, solutions. One solution is uh, informal practice. So in, in sports, it means, for example, instead of taking the elevator, take the stairs. So you integrate the practice into your real life. So for meditation, it means moment-to-moment uh, -moment mindfulness in real life. Uh, that helps, but it doesn't replace going to the gym. It doesn't replace formal practice. The other 
uh, solution is community. So gym buddies. If you have a gym buddy, you're much more likely to go to the gym. Same thing with meditation. A buddy or a group. You're much, much more likely to practice. But again, it's, it's very hard in America today to gather your friends for 20 minutes every day. Right? But this is where an app can come in. You can create a little community. Maybe. Yeah, so, so maybe. Uh, in order for community to work, uh, the, the key word, I think, is accountability. Mm. Yeah, accountable to your friends. And therefore, maybe that could be the weakness of the app. If if there's no accountability, except for you can for what you could build it into the app that you could see mm-hmm. who's meditating, who isn't. And you can give them crap if they haven't, and yes. that kind of thing. That will work well. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So so that's a possible solution. Uh, there's a third solution which I think works really well in sports, and I think works really well here, which is joy. Which is why I wrote the book, by the way. It was the original intention. I wrote the book. So in in sports, uh, in in exercise, what they did is they they gamify sports. I mean, they gamify exercise, and they call it sports. Right. And because it's gamified, people do it for fun. Gamified. Gamified, yeah. yes. Yeah. They do it for fun and therefore they exercise. And so the the trick for me is therefore let's gamify meditation. But it turns out I can't do that because sports is stimulus-driven. And anything stimulus-driven can be gamified. Meditation is stimulus-free. Anything stimulus-free is not easy to gamify. And so uh, I realized something. I realized that uh, there's a way to do that which is the joy point. Right? In, in every meditator's career, there's a point where sitting is consistently joyful. And that is when it's self-sustaining. Mm. Right? So for a teacher, the, I mean, for me, the key question to ask is, how do I accelerate my students towards that point? And I thought about it for a few months and I realized that was the wrong question to ask. The, wrong, the correct question to ask should be, how do I front load joy into the timeline of the practice? And then the question is, how far do I front load it? And realize first breath. So starting from the first breath already we emphasize the joy in the practice. And again, I, f- I feel that I'm not doing anything unorthodox because that was how the Buddha taught it. The Buddha taught it as a path of joy. So front load joy all the way to the beginning. Therefore, they are much more likely to, to reach a joint point much earlier and then sustain their practice. Well, uh, that's... This idea is what makes the book, I think, so fascinating and I think practical and useful. Um, and I'm glad I read it. And I'm glad you came on the, the podcast. Meng, thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me, my friend. Again, my thanks to Meng. I also want to thank my producers who are amazing. Lauren Efron, Josh Cohan, Sarah Amos, Dan Silver, Steve Jones, Andrew Kalb. And also to the listeners of this podcast, if you're into it, please Rate us, review us, recommend us to people. And if you have any suggestions about people you want me to have on or questions you want me to ask or topics you want to explore, just hit me on Twitter. I actually read it uh, at Dan B. Harris. Thank you. See you next time. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. 
You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books. Once upon a beat, remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me DJ and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the new kids and family podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat.